One of the funniest memories that sticks with me from my days playing basketball is the pregame rituals that everyone had. Athletes, if you didn't know it, are some of the most superstitious people on the planet. Whether it be certain meals, certain nap times, certain undergarments. I once knew a guy who didn't change his undergarments for an entire season. His socks, his shoes, certain necklaces, or even religious rituals. Athletes will do whatever it takes to get the upper hand on their opponent. I had a favorite pair of knee-high socks that I wore, and I'm sad to say that. One of my teammates in particular was very superstitious. He believed we were safer whenever we'd get on the plane and he'd see boarding with us certain nuns or priests from our school because I played at the University of Notre Dame. He thought we wouldn't crash because the nuns and priests were with us. He would write things on his shoes as a kind of magical incantation. He would repeat little sayings to himself before every free throw. One game in particular, I remember getting ready in the locker room and watching him do some of his pregame rituals. And another team made fun of him for these superstitions. And um, holding his Bible, he said something like this. He, he said, you have your superstitions, I have God. Now, at the time, I honestly had no idea that this person who said that thought that they were a follower of Christ, and part of it was because they were taking part in the same crazy debauchery that I was in my uh, BC days at the time. Uh, I also didn't notice at the time, because I wasn't aware of it, that in his attempt to compare the two belief systems and contrast them, he was actually doing more to link them together than to separate them. He was linking them as superstitious rituals. Now, it probably does not take long for us to think through our own lives and remember points in time where we have attempted to use the Lord, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, something having to do with Jesus as a lucky rabbit's foot or a spiritual incantation. Here's just a quick example that many of us might think of. How many of you, don't raise your hands, how many of you at various points have thought, oh, I prayed, but I forgot to say in Jesus' name, amen? as if it was necessary every time. When we say in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer, are we using it as a magic incantation, hoping to get God to act in some way, shape, or form? Or are we using it as an affirmation that Jesus is Lord over his kingdom, and what we prayed in that moment was in alignment with his will, his character, and his mission? And we're asking for his authority in the midst of it. The two are very different. Remember that at Ephesus... There was this center of mystery religions and magical incantations. A while back, I showed you guys a picture on the screen of um, a piece of pottery that had three different names on it that if repeated over and over would supposedly bring those gods to act on your behalf. Beetlejuice, 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 right? Who's old enough to remember that? Anyone? Okay, a few of you. It's kind of a lucky charm, And throughout the Greco-Roman world, and especially there in Asia Minor where Ephesus was, there was a notion of spiritualism and even powerful demonic showings of spiritualism and miracles, but not an understanding of the truth of spirituality, of the Holy Spirit. So when Paul brings forth this idea of the Spirit dwelling within your inner being, he's trying to put forward something far different than mere spirituality. He's actually trying to differentiate Christianity from any other religion on the planet. We live in Oregon, guys. How many people call themselves spiritual? Everyone, even the atheists do, because it's the cool thing to do. The way Paul was setting Christianity apart is that the God of Christianity is not disembodied like the force in Star Wars. 
floating around and taking over certain people. He's also not like the pantheists would uh, want us to believe that he exists in the rocks and the trees. He's also not sitting in the temple of Diana, operating in superstitious activity like the Ephesians thought. The God of the Bible is transcendent over his creation, separate from it, but then also desires relationship with his people so deeply that he sent the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, his son, to dwell amongst us, to die for our sins and rebellion, to resurrect from the grave, ascend into heaven, and then to send his Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, into us individually and within the church that we might be one with him, empowered by him, transformed into his image so that we collectively and individually might reflect him and proclaim his glories to the world around us. And to do this well, we have to have the correct understanding of the third person of the triune God that we serve, the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is going to be a huge topic of discussion, especially over the chapter we're in, chapter 4, but for the rest of the letter, really. Um, And in order to see the fullness of what Paul is saying, today we're almost going to take a step back and do a review. We got any teachers in here today? Raise your hands. Yeah, it's good to do reviews with your students, right? Well, we're going to do a little bit of a review because we're coming to a very strong uh, change point, transition point in Ephesians. And so we're going to see what Paul is saying, and hopefully with that, we're going to start to understand why he makes this transition. So the first thing we're going to look at is we're going to go quickly, somewhat quickly, through the first three chapters of Ephesians again. You're thinking, what? We just spent months going through those. Well, we're going to go through it again, and we'll do it in one sitting here. Because I want you to see the train of thought of what Paul is doing. So the first thing that we're going to see here, I've only got a couple of big points here for you today. The first thing we're going to see, you can write this down, is the orthodoxy or the right belief of the Ephesian church. Paul is trying to give orthodoxy or right belief, right understanding to the Ephesian church. We're going to talk about orthodoxy and orthopraxy because this is very, very important. If you don't know what those words mean, I'll explain it in a second. As we come to chapter 4 in Ephesians, we come to a major transition point that must be acknowledged for the book to make sense. It is the point at which Paul switches from the truth of God's work that has occurred and is occurring to the response that it should generate in those that accept it as such. And what Paul's doing here is he's trying to give right belief to the church so that they can have right conduct. As Paul does in almost all of his letters to the churches, He moves from the state of reality theologically to the commands that result from it. And a short way to say this is that he moves from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, from doctrine to practice. And so I want to spend this morning looking at where we have been so far so we can better understand the transformation that Paul is calling us toward. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll start at the beginning. After the greeting, Paul breaks into a spontaneous prayer there in verse 3. Take a look at it with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In so doing, what Paul is saying is, let me tell you about the amazing grace of the God you serve. Our loving Father has blessed us so much that he's given us all possible blessings. That's pretty good, right? If your kids are like, I want a toy, and we say, we'll give you all possible toys, do you think our kids would be happy? Yeah, right? 
Uh, well, you go to Costco and they say, you can have all possible chocolate Costco cakes. You'd get sick, but you'd be happy, right? This is amazing. All blessings. Because he's initiated this plan that we know as the gospel. And he goes on to talk about this in the next few verses. That Jesus, the Son of God, who is infinitely part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would come to the earth, live a sinless life, reflect the character of the Trinity in human flesh, be given up to the death he did not deserve by being crucified on the cross, doing so in our place, and doing all of this so that he might redeem us from our enslavement to sin. In doing this, he brought us to himself. And this has always been the plan. We went through this months ago. Why did he do this? What was the whole point? Look at verse 10. He did this as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In this, he says, we are part of the family of God. We were chosen and adopted into his family. It says so right there in chapter 1. We were adopted into his love along with those who are all elected to this wonderful fate. And in the Greco-Roman world, children were adopted to be inheritors. Adoption was far different in those days. It wasn't as much care for the oppressed or love necessarily. It was to get someone to inherit what you were going to give them. It was keeping the line and inheritance of the family going. And so what this, uh, this required was a legal process to seal that that child would then get the inheritance. And there was a legal seal that would be placed on this. And what Paul says here in chapter 1 is that the legal seal that was placed on each of God's elect people so that they might know they have been adopted and will receive the inheritance of the kingdom is the Holy Spirit. Look with me at verses 13 and 14. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the braze of his glory. The Holy Spirit is given to each of us that are part of the family of God. And it is all because of the sacrifice of the Trinity, the work of Jesus and his death, resurrection, and enthronement as king. And Paul continues on in what Keegan read to us already this morning in verses 15 through 23. He moves from this spontaneous prayer into thanksgiving for the church at Ephesus because they have the Holy Spirit. They are united in things with Christ and with one another. And he says, I want to pray for you. Look at verses 17 and 18 of what he's praying for. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, when you look at this and you take a look at what he's saying about the Spirit, it kind of is like a a record stopping, right? Anytime you run over something while you're driving along the road of Scripture, you should back up and see what you just ran over. If something doesn't make sense, do that. Because didn't Paul just say a second ago that everyone who is his is given the Spirit? But here he says, I'm praying that God might give you the spirit of wisdom. What's he doing here? Why does he now need to pray this if they already have the spirit? Well, one of the things we must understand about the Holy Spirit is that each person who is a true follower of Christ has been given the Holy Spirit. Every person who is a believer of Christ has been given the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Father would give him to anyone that asks. 
If you have accepted the gospel truth of Jesus Christ and repented from what you knew and what you used to worship, and you've turned to follow the true and living God and live under the authority of King Jesus, you have been given the Holy Spirit. Paul continues in the rest of the chapter in verses 19 through 23. But what Paul is doing here is he's saying, you're given the Holy Spirit, but there's something that needs to happen. Now, in the time I've been pastoring in lay ministry and in vocational ministry, what I'm so saddened by is so many Christians who, because of false teaching on the Holy Spirit, feel as though they either, A, don't have the Holy Spirit, or B, they look at other people and go, well, that person has the Holy Spirit, I must not. Or God has given the Holy Spirit to that person because they're better than I am, I must not have as much of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk as we go through the rest of this chapter about gifts of the Holy Spirit, and there's so much false teaching on that out there. And so there are Christians wandering around wondering, why doesn't God empower me more? Here's the truth of Scripture. If you are a believer of Jesus and have repented and turned to Christ, you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You don't need to ask for more or less. We will talk about how you allow the Holy Spirit to work more in your life in a little bit. But Paul continues on here in verses 19 through 23. And he uses a word that is very important in the first three chapters. It actually links a number of different pieces of the first three, uh, three chapters. And it is the word dynamis. You might have heard it pronounced dunamis. Uh, it is a Greek word that means power, dynamis. And it's often been used to describe the Holy Spirit. The teaching usually goes like this. The word dynamis is the etymological origin of the word for dynamite. So Paul is thinking of the power of the Spirit as so strong, it's like dynamite. Unfortunately, this is not a correct metaphor for the Spirit. I'll show you why. D.A. Carson, one of the foremost theologians in the world in his book, Exegetical Fallacies, talks about wrong ways to interpret Scripture. He says on this specific topic, he says, this fallacy occurs when a later use of a word is read back into earlier literature. For example, some wrongly say that the Greek word power, dynamis, has to do with what we think of as dynamite. This is incorrect. Paul was not thinking of blowing things up when he used the term power. So what then was he thinking of? Well, before we move on to that, let me ask you a question. Do any of you remember the power team from TBN? Is anybody in here old enough to remember the power team? Raise your hand if you do. Wow, like uh, a dozen of us. I loved watching the power team. What would happen, the power team was this group of dudes who were like just totally yoked out. I mean, they were about as big as buses. And they would tour around the world and they would put on these shows in giant coliseums. And you, it was like the Beatles back in whenever that was, the 60s or I don't even remember. But like the little girls in front of the Beatles, right? You'd have all these Christian teenagers screaming in front of the power team. Why? Well, because the power team came in and they said, we have the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to show that to you, right? And so, you know, me, being the Bible guy, I might be like, sweet, they're going to show us love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. No, what the power team would do is they would rip telephone books in the name of Jesus. They would do squats in the name of Jesus. They would deadlift in the name of Jesus. They would carry monster truck tires in the name of Jesus. Now, I know, and I guarantee that those guys were doing it out of a definite heart and desire to serve Jesus. And I don't want to put that out there to say, oh, those guys were not serving Jesus. Not at all. I mean, they were using what God had given them. 
But here's the question. Is that what God means when he says power? Is it some ambiguous power that allows us to rip phone books in the name of Jesus? The Ephesians would have gone, ooh, that's cool. That's like the gods we serve. Let's do powerful, cool things that don't really add to the glory of God. They just show really cool signs and wonders. But Jesus said, man, if you're looking for signs and wonders, you're going on the wrong track. The power here that is spoken of is not the power to rip a phone book. What Paul was referring to is a very specific power he references to raise Jesus Christ from the dead, to take what was dead and make it alive, to conquer sin, to take what is broken and causes division and make it unified. This power was not only to raise Jesus from the dead, but to place him as conquering king over all the authorities and created his kingdom, the church, into which we have been reborn. The power of God has brought life to us that were enemies. The power of God has given us reconciliation with our creator God. The power of God has conquered the kingdom of darkness and has filled us with the Holy Spirit. And because of all this, the church, his body, is full of his spirit. We are united with him and one another. The Spirit's power is not a power that divides or destroys like dynamite. It is a power that is meant for unifying, for reconciling, and for making whole. That's why even though that metaphor, which I have even used in the past, is not bad, it just puts a wrong picture in our head of what the Spirit actually is doing. Paul then continues in chapter 2, in the first seven verses there, and he tells us that the individuals within Christ's body have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness that will receive the wrath of God. He rescued us by his mercy and grace and used his power to give us rebirth, regeneration into the family and kingdom of Christ. Look at some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. That's the regeneration. He's remade us, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Dear church, this is the gospel. You want to memorize the gospel? Memorize these three verses. You want a good, short, brief statement of the gospel? This is it. For by grace alone you have been saved, through faith alone, not of your works. And the very reason he saved you by his grace alone is so that you might live to his glory in the life you lead. Paul said something very similar to the pastor Titus when he wrote to him. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We were saved by God's work alone. His grace alone. And it is by faith alone, in that work alone, that we are brought into his family and saved from the kingdom of darkness. And he saved us and gave us the power of his Holy Spirit that we might be a people zealous. You know what zealous means? 
That response doesn't show me you know what zealous means. Do you know what zealous means? Three people do. Zealous means, yeah, I know what it means. It's got power. Not power to rip phone books, but power to do anything and willing to do anything. To lay down your life to show who Jesus is. Zealous for good works. And therefore, he says we need to remember something. What is that thing that we need to remember? Well, he says, in order for us to remember to be able to walk in this truth, he goes into chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. And where, what he says here is, remember that you were once divided. You were outside of relationship with God and outside of relationship with God's people. But he is so loving, so merciful, so gracious that he made a way for us to join him and be in fellowship with his people. And this was by the blood of his son sacrificed on the cross in payment for our sins against God's law. And in this work, God joined together what was before divided and in hostility. And how did he do this? He did it by joining us together in the spirit. Look at chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. For through him we both, meaning Gentiles and Jews who were once divided and hostile, Through him we both have access in what? One spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. And not only does he do this work of taking us out of hostility and joining us together, but he made this family out of every language, every ethnicity, every people group, and made us whole under his loving guise. And not only does the Holy Spirit build this household, he also resides in the middle of it. Look at verses 20 through 22. We are the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, when this happens, when the Spirit dwells amongst the unity of God's people, joined together as this church, built upon the truth of God's word and operating off its precepts, it becomes a temple. The people of God become a temple. Wrap your mind around that. A place where God receives glory and worship and praise and where heaven meets earth. And this reality, this beautiful and miraculous work in the midst of the church causes Paul to again break out in spontaneous prayer. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, but then he holds back. He pauses and again clarifies, hold on, do you remember and do you know the mysterious plan of God, what it is? Look at verse 6 of chapter 3. He says, this plan, this mystery, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, this work of unifying, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There is that unity, that joining together again that has occurred. That those that were divided across ethnic and religious lines, those who had hatred towards one another, have become members of the same body of Christ, the church. And this is the good news that Paul was called to preach. That the cross of Jesus Christ is so powerful and so effective that even enemies are joined together. And he could do it only because of God's power. Look at verse 7 there of chapter 3. 
of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his dynamis, his power by the Spirit. By the power of God through the Holy Spirit that joined him with God and God's people, Paul was called to preach, to draw believers, and then form them into churches, small embassies of the kingdom of heaven in the midst of the kingdom of darkness. And look at verses 9 through 10. What was he doing there? So that he could bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This idea that God was uniting and reconciling and giving life to his kingdom through this broken thing called the church, the assembly of God's people. Guys, do you see the theme that's going throughout these chapters? But Paul, suffering from harm inside and outside the church, knows that this is a battle against the very principalities and powers of the kingdom of darkness, the ones that he's already referenced. And he realizes that the church will fail if God's power is not with with them as they fight against this kingdom of darkness. And so he continues in prayer, the same prayer he began in verse 1 of chapter 3, And Patrick took us through this over the last few weeks. Julie read uh, it earlier uh, this morning. Let's take a look at specifically verses 17 through 19 of chapter 3. You guys out there? You're awfully quiet this morning. Yeah, okay. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He prays that the church of Ephesus would be full of the fullness of God. Immediately, even this morning, we're taken back to two places. We're taken back to chapter 1 where he says this in 22 through 23. Jesus was given authority because God the Father put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And we just read it in chapter 2, verse 22. In him, you, the church, also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When does God dwell in fullness? Well, Paul prays for them when they know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that they might be rooted and grounded in love. You see, brothers and sisters, each of you are individually connected to Christ. And in parallel, Paul says we're also connected to one another. Now, I want to be very clear here. You are all first and foremost reconciled to Christ through faith. That is what makes you part of the church. It's not the other way around. George Smeaton, a 19th century Scottish theologian, uh, says it this way. He says, it is the believer's relation to Christ that puts him in connection with the church, not his connection with the church that puts him into saving relation to Christ. This is part of the great truth that was established during the Reformation. But guys, for one to say, I am marrying my spouse, but I am not also marrying their family, is cause for serious concern of familial dysfunction. Yes, you are absolutely married to your spouse, just as you, Christian, are married to Christ but you are also intimately and in parallel joined to his family, the church. And so Paul's desire is for this reconciled, united body to be formed into a temple where the very presence of God exists 
and dwells among a people that experience the love of one another as an overflow of Christ's love for each of them as individuals. That's his prayer. Brothers and sisters, this is an unbelievable feat that God has been accomplishing. He's been doing this work across the last 2,000 years, across languages, ethnicities, across the globe. And honestly, even more unbelievable is that he was trying to form this beautiful temple, not only in the church located in Ephesus, but he desires the same thing in the churches in Salem and even here at Mission Fellowship. The truth is only God could do this work, and he does it by giving us his spirit so that we might understand what he has done, so that we might cast our eyes upon his glory and the majesty of his plan. Paul knows that we must understand this. We must have the orthodoxy, the right belief. And out of the overflow of our thanksgiving for God's goodness, we then will partner with his spirit to be transformed into his image, into that temple where he dwells in greater and greater glory. You see, as we were going through chapter 3, pieces of it, I was trying to build the tension of all these things that Paul was saying for us as a church to know and understand and do. And there's this tension as you read it, like, Paul, I can't do that. And his whole point is, I know, you can't. And so Paul here uses the word dynamis, power, again. He uses it very specifically. First, look there in 16 and 17 again. He says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with dynamis through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. He placed the spirit in us so that Christ, in a sense, dwells in us. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. You can't pull him off the throne and stick him in your pocket. That's why I fight hard against this phrase, ask Jesus into your heart. I get it's a metaphor, but it's not a good statement. Ask the Spirit into your heart. Absolutely. Jesus is seated on the throne. That's why so few people realize Jesus is king is because they think he's sitting in their heart. No, he's sitting on a throne. The Holy Spirit is in your heart. And what that does is it joins us together with him. And then we begin to obey him because he is our king. And it's hard to do so, isn't it? Can I get an amen? It's hard to obey. It's hard when you feel convicted to go, man, I want to not do the obedient thing, but I'm going to lay it down and I'm going to be obedient. Paul gets this. And this is why it's so important what he says here in verse 20. And I want you to understand the context of everything we've just gone through. He says in verse 20, Now to him, God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, this verse is very interesting because that word able and that word power, they're extremely linked when you read it in the Greek. In the Greek, the word for able is a verb. It's dunamino. It's intimately linked with the word dynamis. And so the word according to the power, dunamin, at work within us. You see, if God is not giving his power through his Holy Spirit to you, here's the truth. You are not able to be obedient to him. It's not possible. 
But if he's in you, here's the truth. You have all the power and you will obey him. The power at work within us is solely because God is able to cause transformation. He can cause Jesus to rise from the dead. So Christian, hear me. He can certainly cause transformation in you. He can take your dead heart and he can make it alive. He's able to transform you and me individually and make us holy. Not perfect as if we've never sinned, but obedient that when conviction comes, we can turn and be obedient. And in doing so, he is fashioning us into a temple. Back in my basketball days, I heard verse 20 all the time. Those of you who are athletes, you know what I'm talking about. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, oh Lord, I want a triple-double today. Lord, three touchdowns, please. He's far more able Well, as you can see, that's taken completely out of context. Dear flock, we've just spent the last half hour looking at Paul's train of thought that led him to this place. And so I ask you, what is this power, this dynamis for in the context of this letter? What is the Holy Spirit given for in the context of this letter? Well, let's look at our text for today after the longest intro in the history of the world, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I therefore, Paul says, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager. Do you guys know what eager means? It's similar to zealous. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Church, what is this power for? The context is 100% clear that the Ephesian church might be unified in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That by this miraculous work of taking that which was divided and joining it together, God might get the glory and the very existence of his church in unity would speak to his gospel truth of reconciliation with him. Look at Paul's parting salutation uh, to the church here in 2 Corinthians. It's up on the board there. He says as parting words to the Corinthian church, and you guys have read First and Second Corinthians, you know what a mess that church was. It says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, to unify the church at Ephesus, Paul will spend the next three chapters, the remainder of the letter commanding and encouraging the church at Ephesus, not just in what he's taught them in the orthodoxy, but in the orthopraxy, the right conduct, in order to become those people that reflect the power of the Holy Spirit at work in their lives. So today is our introduction to that. I want you to write that down. The next thing is the orthopraxy, the right practice or the right conduct of the Ephesians church. Paul says all the work that God has done to unite all things to himself, to create one new people that have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them as the temple of God. He says all this for three chapters. And he says, because of this, I urge you, to walk in a manner that reflects that good news of reconciliation in the unity of the Spirit. Guys, is urge a passive word? 
Is zeal a passive word? Is eager a passive word? No, these are all very strong words. And what is this call that he refers to? It's the call to Christ. Yes, and along with that, this calling to which you have been called, it's a call to the fellowship of his people. 1 Corinthians 1.9, he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, some might want to object to the idea that this is done at all by our own effort. Why would Paul be urging them to walk if that were the case? Hans, you're talking about works. This is all grace. No, guys, grace is justification, glorification. Those are works only God can do. But we're talking about today, this point in our life called sanctification. We've been regenerated if we are Christians. What is sanctification about? What I can say is that in, this, uh, in return to that objection is that the Spirit is already at work within anyone who is a follower of Christ. The question is, are you doing the work that will allow him to work within you? The Puritans had these crazy weird statements that you will never hear people using outside of theology to talk about this, but I want to share them with you. Mortification of the flesh and vivification of the spirit. Everybody say mortification of the flesh. Everybody say vivification of the spirit. I got to find other ways to use the word vivification. I love that word, right? My boys, hey, are you guys vivified enough to go play football, right? I mean, something, right? These are awesome words. It means death to the flesh and life to the spirit. Killing the flesh and allowing the spirit room to live and lead. And I think one of the reasons holiness is so far gone in the Christian church today is partially because of the false cheap grace gospel that's been preached and also because there's no right theology of the Holy Spirit in connection with sanctification in a ton of churches. Again, some might object saying this is a call to human effort and so therefore it's legalistic. But guys, I want to put to bed this idea of legalism. I am so tired of being called legalistic for trying to get you guys to walk in sanctification. Legalism is defined this way and this way alone. If you're defining justification as needing faith plus something else, that's legalism. To call the church to be zealous for good works is biblical. (laughs) It's what Paul did. To call you to get off your hands and to walk as Christians, to urge you to walk in a manner worthy to the calling to which you've been called, that's faithfulness as a pastor. That's not legalism. Legalism is adding some form of human effort to the work of being saved. The initial work of God's drawing us to himself and atoning for our sins. Brothers and sisters, calling you because I love you to sanctification and growing into his likeness is not legalism. It is loving urgency, just as Paul has urged us. When it comes to our sanctification and growing in holiness, God calls us to make every effort. Look with me at 2 Peter. Go in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And look at verse 3. Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Guys, that's the word of God. That's the church. That's the spirit. He's given us all things. 
Amen? Amen. Are we thankful for that? Amen. Amen. Say, thank you, Jesus. Jesus. Get a little Pentecostal with me. Say, thank you, Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, he's given us all things. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, because he's given you all these things, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with, what's that word? Love. Love. Now guys, love is not just something that's out there. I'm loving. You're loved. Love has to happen in the midst of relationship. He's doing this, saying this, because Peter had the same call to the church that Paul did. Commenting on this, the protector of justification by grace alone through faith alone, John Calvin himself says, as it is an arduous work and of immense labor to put off the corruption which is in us, God bids us to strive and make every effort for this purpose. He intimates that no place is to be given in this case to sloth or laziness, and that we ought to obey God calling us, not slowly or carelessly, but that there is a need of alacrity, which means speediness, zeal, as though he had said, put forth every effort and make your exertions manifest to all. Now, one might protest and say, Hans, this is not John Calvin speaking here, it's me. One might protest and say, Hans, is this work only on my part? To which I would respond a resounding no. If you try and white-knuckle holiness, you have already lost because there is no way you can do it on your own power. It is not God's work or man's work, but an intertwined cooperation between the two. Reformed theologian Louis Burkhoff puts it this way, when it is said that man takes part in the work of sanctification, this does not mean that man is an independent agent in the work so as to make it partly the work of God and partly the work of man, but merely that God affects the work in part through the instrumentality of man as a rational being by requiring of him prayerful and intelligent cooperation with the Spirit. Now, some might say, well, I've gotten rid of my big sins in life, so I'm good to go. I'll just wait for heaven. But for some of you, it might still be the graphic sins that you need to fight. But often within the church, I find that it is not the voluminous graphic sins that cause the most brokenness. It is the roots below the surface, the roots of bitterness that are unspoken, the roots of anger that sit untended, the roots of jealousy, of division, of a critical spirit, of passive-aggressive communication, of a thankless heart, of an attitude that is looking for the thanks of man rather than the glory of God. These are the things that cause the most damage among God's people. And they're the things that you can't see right in front of your face. Now, the antidote to these things is to bring them out into the open and to confess them to a brother or sister and to bring them before the Lord and say, Lord, have your way with me. Help me to understand the roots of this issue so that I might remove it and allow your roots of love to fill its place. Some might say, I believe I am saved, but I don't have any desire to be transformed or obey." Remember, though, it is not the one who obeys who is saved, but the one who is saved that obeys. 
If you find the trajectory of your life in disobedience, maybe you need to go back to the gospel and ask if it has actually taken effect in your life at all. Your problem is not whether or not you have enough of the Spirit. It could be that the Spirit is not dwelling in you at all because you are not a Christian. The one who is saved obeys. Christ calls us to put down the flesh and be led by the Spirit. Go with me to Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Galatians 5, verse 19. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. (laughs) It was amazing how many years I tried to convince myself that these weren't for me. (laughs) Anybody else have that problem? Where we read those things about the flesh and we're like, well, I mean, you know, God died for me, saved me from my sins, so that's got to be somebody else. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So that's not an extensive list. It's anything like those. He says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things, can you guys read to me what that says next? Say it one more time for me. If I love you, I'll tell you that truth, won't I? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have, past tense, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's an ongoing work, but there's a decision made at a point in time. And he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Notice that all of those things are framed within the one another context of relationships within the church. And if you do not understand why your life is not being transformed, first recognize that this is a lifelong process of change. So, dear saint, please give yourself grace If you feel that you have not yet arrived, then join the club because none of the rest of us have either. But what you should be seeing is ongoing transformation. We should never expect perfection of one another. If we do, that's where bitterness will creep in. But we should always be expecting one another to grow. And so today, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, I I don't know if I have transformation. What's the key to it? Well, I want to tell you this. It's right understanding of who God is. It's beholding God's glory. It is the orthodoxy that Paul spent the first three chapters explaining. Look with me here on the screen at 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now this verse could be translated... We are all being changed into the image of Christ by beholding the glory of the Lord. Robert Mounts, a theologian, says this. He says, transformation into the likeness of Christ 
is the inevitable result of gazing upon his glory. Transformation into the likeness of Christ is the inevitable result of gazing upon his glory. We become that which dominates our thoughts and our affections. Brothers and sisters, you and I have been given all that we need in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Scriptures, and the Holy Church to be transformed into the image of Christ. Not only have we been justified by the blood of Jesus, we have been resurrected with him, regenerated into a new life that is being conformed into his image. And so we must cooperate with the Spirit by making every effort to put to death our flesh and live by the Spirit. As we enter into this new section of Ephesians and we begin looking at the correct conduct of God's people, I want to urge us, along with Paul, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And so today I have two very simple points of application for you. So write them down, get your phones out, whatever you need to do to remember them. Two simple points of application. First, I want each of us this week to commit to behold the glory of the Lord. Today I want you to go home and purpose and plan, actually make a plan, to set aside time each morning this week to read through Ephesians 1 through 3 in whole and gaze upon the glorious majesty and manifold wisdom of Christ. Again, Robert Mounts notes, he says, the transformation keeps pace with the contemplation. The two are inextricably bound together. So I want you to meditate, to contemplate, to dwell on the miraculous goodness of God and what he has done and is doing by his cosmic plan of salvation. Meditate on, understand, and know the goodness and the glory of God. And then secondly, the second application I want you to do is I want, to let that, I want you to let that meditation by the power of the Holy Spirit motivate you to make every effort to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, to put to death the roots of flesh in your life. To do so, I want you to identify not all of the areas that all of us have, Simply one in your own life. This week, I want you to identify one area in which you know that you are currently being led by the flesh and you need to let the Spirit lead. And what I want you to do is after admitting that and writing it down and taking it before the Lord, I want you to go to a brother or sister within this body. I want you to confess that to them and I want you to sit with them And pray with one another and help one another to develop a plan of attack that might put that one thing of the flesh to death. You got it? There's your two applications. Contemplate the glory of God and then act with every effort to kill at least one thing this week. Begin to put it to death that is part of your flesh and not driven by the Spirit. Do you think we can do that? I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called.